0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 17th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. What are the practical checks on a president tempted to use nuclear weapons? It's a question that has taken on a new importance in the presidency of Donald Trump. Cato Institute Vice President Gene Healy discusses the role of the president in making thermonuclear war. When we think about the Constitution of 1789 and the powers that were granted to the president, it it seems as if those powers are essentially you can repel attacks on the United States.
1: That's right. Uh, that was the language used. Uh, you see it in Madison's notes uh, at the Constitutional Convention, uh, the president was understood to have the power to repel sudden attacks, uh, and uh, you know, one thing is clear, I mean we can debate with the regard to nuclear weapons whether the power to launch a second strike, a launch under attack is included in that power to repel sudden attacks. One thing is clear though I think is that the power to repel sudden attacks isn't, doesn't include the power to launch them, to launch a, a nuclear first strike or offensive action of of any magnitude
0: legislatively, how has that power changed? I mean, what to what extent has Congress granted to the president some sort of less than clear uh, mandate to engage in greater force?
1: The erosion of congressional control of the war powers has been a, you know, it, it's not entirely a matter of power-hungry presidents. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. said it was as much a matter of uh, congressional abdication as of power hungry uh aggrandizing presidents uh so in a number of ways congress has uh has ceded authority uh sometimes it's through overly broad uh authorizations for the use of military force uh the one that obviously comes to mind is the uh authorization for the use of military force that Congress passed three days after September eleventh which is now in its 15th year and being used uh, not as it was intended to get al-Qaeda and the Taliban, but to uh, authorize uh, a a host of far-flung military operations in a number of countries and against a number of groups that were never envisioned in that initial authorization. So there's a little question that uh, Congress has contributed to the erosion of its powers, uh, it, the powers that were understood to go under the power to declare war.
0: So, but even in the War Powers Act, there is a requirement that the president get permission from Congress for certain kinds of attacks that go beyond repelling something in the U.S.
1: Yeah, the uh, the ir- irony with the uh, War Powers Resolution it was passed uh, over uh, Richard Nixon's veto uh, in 1973 as Watergate was heating up, um, and in the context of not preventing us from sliding into uh, to military operations that started out short of war and became full, full-fledged wars. Uh, the irony with the War Powers Resolution is the system it sets up uh, for uh, pulling uh, U.S. troops out of hostilities— uh, that the President has gotten us embroiled in, uh, presidents since have sort of turned it on its head uh, they've they've asserted that uh, the war powers resolution was designed to be a 60 day blank check for presidents to wage war at will uh, and that was it's not what the resolution says, and it's certainly in the context not something that was ever intended
0: so what does it say?
1: The War Powers Resolution uh, sets out a, a, at the outset the the three uh, conditions under which the president can introduce US forces into hostilities. And those are a declaration of war, uh, a specific statutory authorization uh, from Congress, and a national emergency uh, created by an attack on uh, the United States or US forces. And those, those three conditions track Pretty well with the original understanding of the Constitution's allocation of war powers. Uh, it leaves the President the power to repel sudden attacks, but not the power to engage in offensive military operations without prior authorization from Congress.
0: There have been concerns in the past about presidents who were not quite right uh, engaging in uh, hostilities with you know severe results. Uh, There is that concern in Congress now. What does Ted Lieu suggest that we do?
1: Well, he's got a bill that is supposed to bar the first use of nuclear weapons on the part of a president, essentially a, a no first strike policy. It's called the Restricting First Use of Nuclear Weapons Act. And it says that the president may not use the armed forces of the United States to conduct a first use nuclear strike unless such strike is conducted pursuant to a declaration of war by Congress that expressly authorizes such strike. And I guess the questions here are, uh, is this bill constitutional and would it work?
0: All right. So it it would seem that a declaration of war is a prerequisite for all sorts of things that the president could do.
1: Well, I don't think we want to get too hung up on uh, declaration versus specific statutory authorization. All right. Uh, there's no... Uh, some people, uh, Rand Paul uh, has, has made a lot out of this, uh, uh, out of the declarations of war but my reading is that you don't need uh, magic words. Uh, you do need authorization from Congress. Uh, you know, there, there, there are reasons the declaration of war has fallen into disuse. But the important thing for constitutional purposes is that uh, one man doesn't get to make the decision. Like uh, James Wilson said when he was explaining uh, to the Pennsylvania ratifying convention uh, the constitutional allocation of war powers, uh, the point is that the system is not is not going to hurry us into war. That it's not in the power of one man to, to make this momentous decision. And uh, so uh, you, you know that can be done through a statutory authorization. The important thing is that the president doesn't get the, to make the call himself. So what the, uh, the Liu bill is trying to do is uh, recapture some of the power that Congress has ceded and uh, ensure that a system that's not supposed to hurry us into war – Uh, won't hurry us into nuclear war through a presidential first strike. Trevor
0: Burrus And it seems that that up until this point, uh, when you have the president via Twitter uh, threatening North Korea with some fire and hell or whatever words that he used, um, there are a whole lot of open-ended authorizations of the use of military force, at least as interpreted by presidents, that probably ought to be rescinded or cleaned up at least.
1: Well, yeah, uh, already this year in the first 6 months of his presidency uh under mostly under the authority of the uh 2001 AUF, AUMF the uh, authorization for the use of military force that Congress passed as, after September 11th, already in the first 6 months of his presidency, uh he's uh under that authority has uh dropped some 20,000 bombs. He's uh Barack Obama had a had a big year in the last year of his presidency in terms of airstrikes. But Trump is now on pace to uh, pass his, uh, Obama's 2016 record uh, by Labor Day. Uh, and uh, it was a banner week for, uh, for Donald Trump la- last week in terms of uh, issuing military threats. I mean, it, it was almost an afterthought uh, that he, uh, he said that he was keeping military options on the table for Venezuela. Uh, the big one, of course, as you said, was the, uh, uh, what appears to have been an off the cuff ad libbed, uh, threat of nuclear annihilation, uh, with North Korea. And when you're talking about a president who has a a meltdown on Twitter on a semi-weekly basis, uh, who is now talking openly about, uh, The the first use of nuclear weapons, uh, it's pretty clear that that people have a lot to be concerned about.
0: With respect to this legislation, I can imagine some of the criticisms being, "Well, they're going to fire the nukes when Congress is out of town, and the president will be powerless to respond."
1: Well, that is not my concern with the legislation at all. I mean, uh, my concerns go in the the other direction. I wonder uh, what effect this bill would have if it were passed? I mean, in principle, you know, would it be a dead letter? Uh, In principle, the military is not supposed to obey an illegal order by the president, but in practice, uh, they tend to follow the chain of command. Uh, You know, one example would be the war powers resolution. People debate over uh, whether, you know, what authority it leaves with the president for the first 60 days, but there's not a lot of debate that, uh, after that clock runs out that the president is supposed to – he shall terminate the use of U.S. forces in hostilities after the 60-day clock has run out. But on two occasions in recent decades, presidents have just blown by that limit. Uh, in Kosovo in 1999 and in, in Libya in 2011, uh, despite the clear language of the War Powers Act, it, you know, that didn't matter. Uh, President Clinton and President Obama ordered the military to keep bombing, and they did. So the question is, why would this uh, te- this this bill, this No First Use Act, lead to a dif- different result? Uh, you know, it, it's not as though it puts a, a, a set of keys that has to be turned. Uh, you know, in, in the offices of the Speaker of the House and the President Pro Tem of the Senate, or something. Uh, it leaves the command, the nuclear uh, command and control structure as is and that structure is designed. Uh, it was designed during the Cold War uh, to give the president the power very quickly to uh, launch a second strike if missiles are in the air and because it does that, uh, it means it's also very hard. We haven't had to deal with this uh, thankfully, but it's also very hard because of the system it sets up to stop a president from launching a first strike. And the you know by the time that uh, you know, the the codes uh, for the order are, are authenticated and it goes out to the guys in the silos and the concrete bunkers who turn the keys, uh, well, those guys are pretty well vetted. Uh, that you don't have a lot of, you know, you're not going to have a Chelsea Manning question authority type uh, in that kind of position, uh, you know. So, so by the time that order is transmitted and it's out uh, to the actual launch sites, uh, it, it's probably too late. The only effect I could see, uh, and this is pretty speculative, the this bill having, is that it might. Embolden uh, a a secretary of defense or a chairman of the Joint Chiefs earlier in the nuclear chain of command to challenge what they view to be an unwise and arguably illegal order by the president. Uh, There's a story about the final days of the Nixon administration when uh, uh, under the pressure of Watergate, Nixon was not really in his right mind, wandering around drunk. Uh, and people around him worried he was going to do something crazy. There's a In a meeting with some congressmen at the time, apparently he said, uh, I can go into my office and pick up a telephone and in 25 minutes millions of people will be dead, uh, which gave them pause. Uh, and uh, one of them you know, called up the defense secretary at the time, James Schlesinger, and supposedly Schlesinger... Uh, told the top military brass, if you get any unusual orders, you know, let me know uh, and clear them with me first. The possibility, I guess, with, with something like uh, the the bill that Lou is proposing, is that you would uh, give uh, folks in the Pentagon, whether it's the Secretary of Defense or the the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, a little more backbone, a little, uh, a little cover uh, to show that this is an illegal order and something that they could slow down. And I guess if if that's uh, if there's a possibility of that, then it's worth talking about.
0: Gene Healy is a vice president at the Cato Institute and author of The Cult of the Presidency. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.